Hello, everyone, and welcome to Soundtrack, your friendly neighborhood film music podcast on the Cinematic Schematic, powered by thecinematropolis.com. My name's Alexander Bohannon, and I'm your host of Soundtrack, your guide and interviewer for this very special episode. But as always, I'm not alone. Joining me in our official podcasting studio, sir, will you introduce yourself? Hi, my name is Caleb Masters, the editor-in-chief and voice of the Cinematic Schematic, Caleb Masters, Alexandra Bohannon. I am very excited to be joining you on this special kickoff episode of our interview series. Absolutely, Caleb. It's it's our very, very, very first episode of our interview series here on Soundtrack, and I am just just ecstatic to talk to these amazing folks doing the stuff I admire so much in the field that I love. So (laughs) it's a very exciting time for me. Well, uh, Alex, with this being the first episode of our interview series, uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about why you wanted to do this interview series and kind of what listeners can expect. Sure. Okay. So uh, we've, we've done a, done a few of these now and we're going to be pretty, uh, withholding in terms of uh telling you our guests because that's i don't know i think it's more fun that way <laughs> um but it's always gonna be a surprise it's gonna be a surprise and basically i wanted to interview these amazing men and women in in this field because i feel like so frequently the music of television video games uh movies and all this new world of new media content it kind of it's it's beloved but then People have a hard time remembering, you know, names with the works that they've done. They they know the na- the 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 score or the theme from their favorite childhood television program, but they don't know who is the the mastermind and the brain behind giving them this piece of this piece of music that means so much to them. So we're doing this to give some insight to people that have been behind the scenes for years who have these robust careers, but you might not necessarily instantly remember their names and give people like that a a chance to speak to you and for me to ask questions and for Caleb to ask questions about stuff I've been dying to know for years, especially from some of my favorite composers in the field. You're going to learn, you know, the the nitty gritty behind some of your favorite franchises. You're also going to learn some of the weird business size of composing that people like me that are on the outside looking in, you don't really quite know until you're in that, into those spaces and run in those circles. It's so, a lot. It's definitely a lot different to, to appreciate something versus uh, talk to someone who's actually making a thing that yeah. pays their bills. Yeah, absolutely. And all, all of the people we've interviewed so far and we will interview, they all bring such passion and commitment and heart to their work. And I just, I love that. I want to celebrate that. And so that's kind of what we're we're doing here today. Yeah. And I think it's also a really cool opportunity for folks out there who maybe want to get into music composing or just really generally more interested in about how, how do people make film scores. You get a little bit of insight into how the sausage is made, yeah. so to speak. The world's kind of our oyster right now in terms of content. We're so rich with it. It is very everywhere all the time and there's ways to do scoring that isn't just oh it's tv oh it's games oh you know the big three basically yeah film film tv and video games yeah yeah it's i mean it it could be um scoring for audiobooks podcasts it could be scoring for we've even talked to someone that scored for web comics so far which 
it's like all these really interesting ways you can contemplate music as as aligned with a, a medium of any kind. And I, I love that. It's fantastic. <laughs> so much fun. Now, Alex, uh, listeners may have caught one of the more famous tracks composed by today's special guest at the top of the show. The theme song for Invaders is him by Kevin Manthe. Now, Kevin has a plethora of memorable works as a composer for film, TV, and video games, including Invaders M, Ultimate Spider-Man, Xyland Showdown, the Tron Evolution video game, and Batman Gotham Knight. He's actually returning to Invaders M for the upcoming TV movie revival on Nickelodeon, Invaders M, Enter the Florpus, and the new season of Ben 10. Now, before we jump into today's talk with Kevin, let's check out another soundbite from one of his tunes from the animated 2008 film Batman Gotham Knight. This piece is titled Crossfire. On today, on a very special episode of Soundtrack, we're interviewing composer for film, animation, and video games, Kevin Manthe. Welcome to Soundtrack, Kevin. Hey, thanks for having me. Well, thanks for being on. I, I'm, I'm completely just so floored and, and thankful that you were here to join us today on our adventure. Absolutely. Well, you hit the sweet spot because we specialize in film scores, but uh, we're both we both game a lot mm-hmm. uh, and watch a lot of TV. You know, so any excuse we can have to 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 and talk to people who've worked across all three of them that's that's really exciting. And and, and you've just got like a an incredible portfolio of stuff that I, I know I love. So I'm excited to pick your brain about it. <laughs> yeah, that's nice because um, I I think most composers we just think we we just sit in our little rooms and you know with the lights down and. We, we don't really think about people actually listening to what we do. We just are trying to make the producers and directors that we work with happy. Oh, well, please know that there are people that really cherish the work that you do and appreciate it very much. Absolutely. But I'm going to rewind it a little bit because, I mean, there's yeah. still a lot of cool stuff that you have done um, in your, your career before even uh, that program so but how did you find your way into composing for film for tv for gaming how what what got you started in this field um i i just really needed to move away from minnesota it was too cold so i thought i'd move to la um but really from an early age i was drawn to creating moods and emotions on the piano um i i remember wanting to take piano lessons because I I felt like this keyboard was like magical. And like, I remember not knowing what I was doing, but still trying to create moods playing up high and soft and quiet and, and just really dark and angry down on the bottom of the keyboard and, and um, being fascinated by the fact that um, I could create emotion just with these keys on the piano. So that just kind of got me into music. And then I, I studied trumpet and um, elementary school and high school and studied piano and <clears throat> just um, kind of pretty much right away just started composing on piano, slowly moving into synthesizers and four tracks and get, being in bands and 
all that kind of stuff. And that all led to going to the University of Minnesota um, for uh, music theory and composition for a four-year degree there. And so then just one thing leads to another, and I ended up at the University of Southern California out here in Los Angeles uh, doing the scoring for motion pictures and television degree at uh, USC. And then a few short years later, well, actually right away after school, I just started working with other composers and <clears throat> doing assistant work and getting my own little jobs here and there and just boom, you know, kind of, they always say it takes a few years. You got to go through, go to the school of hard knocks. I did that and um, got into the industry and been working ever since. You, you did the dream, you know, you decided you wanted to do, you, you stuck with piano lessons way back, you moved to synthesizers and then you just went on, you, you went all the way, moved out to California and, and, and put in your dues. I mean, that's a, a real inspiration because I know for a lot of folks that somewhere, somewhere along the line, it gets a little, it gets a little harder. So that's exciting to see that you've had a really successful career. To, to encourage people out there. The one thing that I know have noticed along the way is there's always people that are way more talented than me way better piano players, or I, I think even better, you know, definitely better composers, definitely better at all these things. But it's not just about that. It's about passion. It's about the things you're really excited about. It's about not giving up. It's about being smart and thinking about what's my next step. And um, just not maybe not settling. And really, if this if it's really the thing that you want to do, you just got to keep keep working at it and you find your niche. Yeah, no, I think that that's, that's a great point. And I mean, I, it's one of those things, you know, just um, it's good to hear. If you just do the work, if you focus and you and you try to keep your eyes open for the, the opportunities, they'll come along, uh, which actually leads me to my first question, which is, uh, you know, what was the first gig where you knew that composing in the entertainment business was where you wanted to invest your career? I mean, obviously you went to, to school for it, but I'm sure there was probably a job early on where you're like, okay. I made a good choice. <laughs> sure. Okay. So I'll tell you the I'll tell you the couple of things that I did when I was still in college that were really fun and made me that I knew that I wanted to continue and I knew that I wanted to do this professionally. And then I'll tell you my first sort of professional gig that was really exciting. Um, so when I was when I was in college and doing my theory and composition degree, not really a lot of real world experience there. So I kind of went out and uh, made some contacts at the local access, the local cable access channel, like the public TV channel. And um, I just took some video production classes there and I, I just met all the guys that were working there. And one of the guys he was working with doing videography for another person, they were doing like this comedy, local sketch comedy show. And I ended up scoring that show. And then the other producer over there, he was doing on the side, he was doing um, a corporate video infomercial kind of thing. And so I, I got to write some music for that. And um, it was just, no one was telling me how to do this stuff. I was just figuring it out uh, in real time on these sort of low budget. It still felt like a lot of pressure, but less pressure, you know, and doing little commercials here and there for people. Uh, local commercials. I actually even wrote music for our themes, a cup like a bunch of theme music for a friend who had a radio show, um, uh, like a, on a news talk station. So just kind of any opportunities I could had in Minnesota to sort of flex my muscles and 
practice and try out these real world uh, things in a little bit of a safer environment was really fun. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure doing work in Minnesota, even though I mean, the work of an, the the career of an artist and a musician, I know, is hard no matter where you go. But it's certainly maybe a little lower risk than you know, upheaving yourself and moving to Los Angeles right away. Yeah, and it's nice to be able to do things like when you're in school and you don't. You, there's not like the pressure of like, oh, this is make or break. It's just kind of like you're just doing it because you're excited about it and it's fun. Um, the other thing that I did that that I think really um, got me ready for being a full-time composer was I was just always writing music. So I had my own studio. Um, by the time I was in college, I had, um, <laughs> I, my first computer I bought was a Macintosh SE. Nice. And I had a 20 megabyte hard drive. And, uh, I was actually running the program digital or not digital performer. Cause that, that didn't come along for another 10 years. It was performer. I was on version 2.41. And um, I had a bunch of synthesizers. I had a mixer, I had uh, outboard gear, like, you know, reverbs and delays. And um, I was producing pretty good stuff. It was pretty crazy stuff because I was just in such an experimental mode in my brain that I, I just, it was like my music was just exploding. And I think when you listen back, it's just like there's such creative, it's it's really creative and weird sometimes. And sometimes it's just plain old weird. Sometimes it's just really awfulest sounding and sometimes it's like it all clicked and just really worked well together um but um i was just putting in those hours you know learning my craft learning the software learning how to produce learning to listen and to um you know make music basically um so then the other the your the other sort of exciting the first career sort of uh, thing that really stood out stands out to me is um, my, the first video game I scored and it was about maybe about a year out of school um, maybe a year and a half and it was for a Paramount Pictures video game for the Indian in the cupboard the children's wow yeah okay yeah. I saw that I thought I saw that credit on there yeah, that was the first game I ever scored. And it was such a magical experience. I really? mean, it was it was heavenly. It was like, I, I felt like things were, inspiration was just there. I was just sitting down at the keyboard. In fact, I'm sitting, I'm in my studio, my secondary studio, and I, and I have the keyboard in front of me that um, I've had since, actually I've had it since then. It's like a Yamaha electronic piano. Wow. And um, I just, I still remember like programming these harp, these harp arpeggios and, and just um, being inspired really by um, the subject matter at heart and the sort of the emotional, magical storytelling of that, um, of the movie, being able to, 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 you know, be inspired by the movie, but then writing the music for the video game. So that was the first thing that was like, okay, that, that totally got me hooked on video games. And that's kind of where I went for a while until I kind of veered back into animation, which we'll talk about later. That's incredible. I, that's so interesting to me, especially one thing that always fascinates me when I talk to composers, uh, because it's really interesting to me to talk to people of varying like ages, because you actually worked on in an era where, you know, you know, you're, some people compose on like Amigas and like all kinds of things and there's discs and all that stuff. Can you, so can you like, okay, walk me, a millennial, through like a composition process 
um, back when um, things were a lot more analog and there was like no digitization, you maybe had four tracks at yeah. tops. Yeah. I, you know, it's, what's interesting is um, I would say, so I would say I wrote that music was probably 1993. So I kind of got into games right at the point of time where we, they called it Red Book Audio. And all that meant was the CD-ROM game that you bought, it had actual CD quality audio. Maybe it was reduced a little bit, but the audio was on the disc. And so that was one reason why you always had to keep your disc in the computer was because the disc was spinning and it was playing the music in real time off of the disc instead of it playing off of a file off of the hard drive. Oh, and so that was wow. Yeah. So um, what was great about that was I was able to u- utilize my entire studio, all of my synthesizers, my samplers, and all of that, create the music, submit the music in, you know, like 44.1K stereo, basically CD quality. I would submit it in CD quality, and then they would put it in their game, sometimes at CD quality. Sometimes they'd have to put it in as mono or reduce um, the bit rate a little bit so it wasn't quite as crisp as what you would expect. But um, for the most part, since from 1993 on, uh, unless you were working on one of those like Game Boys or one of those, um, uh, some of those, like the Ninten- some of the Nintendos, they had some pretty sketchy uh, and more challenging ways to do audio. Oh man, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, but I, you know, I'm not super technical, so I never really got into that. My my whole thing with video games at that point was I was like, hey, I'm this cinematic film and television composer who understands cinema and how to you know write in a film more with a, a a nice film sound and I can take that and bring it to you and put it in your video game versus like, because that at the time that was kind of like the, the guys who were doing all the music for games, they were the guys who were maybe programmers first and then they turned into musicians second, or they were musicians and programmers and they were really good at what they were doing. But um, I was kind of part of that early generation of game composers that were like, no, I'm I'm just a composer. I've really studied this. I really know my craft and I really understand production and synthesizers and samplers and you know, what are the best music libraries out there? How do I make how do I have the bit, the best orchestral sound that's happening right now and you know, basically my music sounded as good as what it could sound like you know in a film or a TV show at the same, at that time. Yeah, that's really fascinating. And of course, I, I mean, you, so you really were a forerunner in a lot of ways, because of course, we've seen how video games have gone on to um, I largely uh, mimicking the cinematic experience. Absolutely. And you get some retro, a lot of retro games. That also it's all throwback. It's, yeah. um, it's always kind of like an artifact whenever you can, you know, plug a thing. I actually saw a, a game that I'm obsessed with right now. Um, you can actually play it on an Amiga. You can play Dead Cells on an Amiga. Wow. Yeah. So, it, but that's the thing is like, so people can program using that, those sound packs and everything. But yeah, I mean, you're, you're blazing the trail. I mean, cause uh, I mean, cause you did that before there was like a Halo score. Um, I mean, and then heck, I, well, I know we're going to touch on Spider-Man here in a second, but I mean, I, I just finished playing that, the new one that came out and it's similar in the sense that it's, uh, 
very much aiming to sound as cinematic as possible. Now I'm curious, uh, now you, because you've because you've you've got that unique experience of doing work across mediums, uh, starting with video games and doing it with a film background and television, especially with brands like Marvel and Spider Man, you've even created sounds for different iterations of the same character. So how does composing uh, the composing process differ for each media? Well, one of the things that stays, I'll talk about one of the things that stays the same, which is um, as composers, we're helping tell the story where a lot of times we're sort of the actor you don't see. And we're um, an integral part of this, of the emotional storytelling. And, you know, when, when that music is not there or that music is not right, you're like, what, what's going on here? There's something not, you know, clicking here. Um, you know, unless it's that kind of style where you don't need the music, um, which can work too. But um, so that's one thing that I feel like no matter if I'm doing video games or uh, television or film, is that I'm always helping underscore the, the correct emotions that the producers and directors and, and um, people that are creating the project need. Um the, the biggest difference between the two is just in general, I know there are some games that are very interactive with their music and, um, but in general video game music, you're scoring more of an area or a level versus something extremely specific that's happening. Um, in games we'll have music for a very, uh, like a level, let's say it's a Star Trek online and you're, you're visiting this alien planet and it's got a horror vibe. And it's, you know, it's a little creepy. So you got this kind of creepy ambient track that plays. And maybe it's for a little bit of light combat, that same piece will play. But once you walk into this certain room, it triggers that new piece. And it's the big boss horror piece that I wrote specifically for that level. But I'm not scoring. I can't score all the various actions and hits and all that kind of thing. Uh, we can do scoring of, of intensities with, with various levels in the piece. We do that, you know, as it gets more closer to the end of almost beating the boss, it, it can pump up a couple intensity levels. So in the sense that it, it will feel a little more uh, big and dangerous as you're getting close to killing the boss um, whereas let's, if, if you say, if you take that exact same thing, let's say you're, you're, it's a horror film, it's a sci-fi horror film and you're walking through these tunnels. So you're scoring to that, but then let's say there's like this big sound that comes off screen and, and all the characters react, you know, and, the, and so you can obviously score that moment. You can hit that moment with music because it's, it's the same. It doesn't change. It's not a video game. So that's the biggest thing is that video games are not linear per se. They, you know, they, you can spend three hours sitting in a level or you can spend 30 minutes, but a TV show and, uh, you know, animation and film is set in stone. There's a locked picture and I score to that picture. So it like, uh, so gaming is more loop oriented. So you have to find... Uh, you have to compose scores that are little like that they can play on repeat for either, like you said, either like five minutes or an hour. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so that, that kind of comes to one of my second points when I write video game music. Um, I, let's say I'm writing a three minute piece that will loop in that ambient 
area of the game. I don't want to, in that three minutes, I want to write as much original material. Like, in other words, it's uh, what we would call through composed, meaning you don't really, that first idea, you have an a, 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 a number one idea, number two, a number three, a number four, a number five, six, seven, eight. You just kind of keep those ideas flowing through until the end of that three minutes because you know that at the end of that three minutes, it's going to start back at the very beginning. And the player is going to now hear that as a repeat. And that's sort of his time to sort of hear the chorus or the second verse. You know, it's kind of kind of like a, a song. Um, you know, songs like to hit the chorus like three times and, you know, two or three verses. But in video game music, I like the for them to hear the chorus and the verse on the repeat. So a big, more bang for the buck, basically. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, that's really interesting. Now, you mentioned a property that's really dear to, dear to my heart, which is Star Trek. Um, so I was really interested because um, I'd say that Star Trek has one of the most prominent sounds in like pop cultural history. I mean, people know Gary, uh, Jerry Goldsmith's household name. So when, whenever you're approaching uh, a work like that, um, are you taking some of those initial cues from Goldsmith and then working them within the game itself uh, to harken back to that? Or are you trying to, um, t- you know, kind of manipulate ideas and really just kind of spin them off for your own, your own ideas? Well, so Jerry was not the very first, you know, the, the, the original Star Trek in the, the television show had the iconic theme. And so when I'm, when I'm, was writing, when I'm writing music for Star Trek online and when I was asked to do the main title, we started with, um, just some motifs at the very beginning of this, of our Star Trek online. We, we got permission to use the, uh, section of their original Star Trek TV show theme. And then from there, then it was like into just like, um, you know, sort of my take on the Star Trek universe while respecting and understanding that Jerry and so many other great composers have written really good themes for this universe. Um, so I try not to overthink things and that this, <laughs> this would be one where you could really get bogged down in uh, just like the fear of not doing anything because you're mm-hmm. like, Oh my gosh, you know, how, how am I going to write a theme? You know, that's as good as Jerry Goldsmith's. Well, you know, I'm probably not, but you know, that's okay. And that this is, this is Star Trek online and, you know, he did his thing. I'm doing my thing. And you know, what, what can I bring to the table? How can I put myself into this theme while also respecting the canon and um, finding a unique way to to spin it off. What's actually been interesting is, um, so I did the original Star Trek Online theme, but then this summer, um, they we they did a module called Victory is Life, which was based on, um, um, oh shoot, I'm forgetting what it was based on the one of one of the other. Um, uh, TV TV series that was on that was Star Trek based, um, and then right now, actually this week, I started working on uh, the discover the Discovery CBS show that's on right now. Their Star Trek Online is doing a module um, that's 
real that's based on that they're gonna have some of the voice actors from the actual show from uh, the, the star star trek discovery yeah that's oh, fantastic awesome. yeah and yeah so <laughs> yeah go ahead oh yeah i was just saying i i i had to look it up i was really curious it's uh deep space nine which is my favorite yeah, star trek so uh, i'm very that's so amazing i can't wait to i'm totally gonna listen to a bunch so of that, yeah that music is on my soundcloud i have pretty much all of the music from that up on my soundcloud um that was really fun because so for that one um the deep space nine um i obviously because it was deep space nine i was able to i listened to dennis mccarthy's theme and was just um really just took inspiration from that specifically for that module um and now with, with the discovery one we're we're kind of um you know, taking, I'm just kind of being inspired and just listening and, and just kind of learning about the, the, that whole series and what it's all about. So it's, it's kind of a, it's an interesting dance because it's not like we actually have the, um, you know, it's not like we actually can use that actual music. Um, it's not like licensed or anything. So it's like, we're being inspired by those properties, but we're not trying to you know, just do really bad ripoffs of it. Yeah. And, and for me, I think that's, I mean, as a, a fan of the franchise and, and of many franchises that you have worked within, um, I, I think that's kind of like the sweet spot because you want, you, I want to hear, you know, I, I like hearing, you know, these homages, but I, I mean, mm -hmm. hearing what, where you can do to push it forward. I mean, that's, sure. that's like kind of the, you know, the dream you're contributing to, yeah, you know, sure. the canon of all of these properties. That's yeah. kind of yeah, mind blowing. It's, it's, I agree. Say it again. Oh, I'm just saying that it's mind blowing. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that oh, yeah, you're okay. contributing. <laughs> oh, sorry. I don't know if we cut out for a second there. Uh, it's okay. Yeah. It's, um, it is, it is a little humbling for sure. And it's a lot of pressure, you know, when you like get that phone call, like, Oh, okay. Now we're doing discovery. Like, okay. Um, you know, what, what do I do? What do I do? What's my first step? How do I, how do I do this? I mean, uh, definitely a, a much different challenge than composing original, uh, original music. I'm sure. Um, just cause yeah. there's that, we ex the fan baggage expectation that comes along with it. But on the other hand, I think yes. I mean, it sounds like a really cool opportunity too, because it's like you get to have your cake and eat to contribute to an existing brand. Yeah. I don't know. Very cool right. stuff. Well, and what's hard about like the discovery one is it's not like the, the discovery is that there, there hasn't been like overwhelming response to the actual theme for the show either. So, I mean, like some people like it, but some people aren't, you know, it's not like he, they tried, they went a different direction a little, a lot more than other Star Trek um, properties have. And so because of that sort of, you know, trying something different, it's, you know, some people don't like that. Some people do. And so that's challenging for me too. Like, how do I navigate the fact that, you know, this, this theme maybe isn't as widely loved as others you know so uh when looking you know kind of uh taking a look at all the uh, the, the awesome stuff you've worked on I, I ran across a lot of familiar names uh things like the the faculty uh, as a film alexander and i are big fans of but you also have done some work with the the scream series and the resident evil series and i know you uh, you said you that, that is work you've done with uh marco uh beltrami uh early in your career can you speak to what that was like for you what that experience sure. was 
Yeah, it was um, was amazing. Um, Marco and I went to USC at the same time. So when he got out of school, he um, he really worked it hard, you know, net, doing a lot of networking, doing a lot of creative networking. And um, he ended up scoring a, a TV show. Um, and, I, and I started doing some music editing and assisting on that and a little bit of writing on it, um, doing some source music and just a lot of doing a lot of all kinds of stuff. And so then, then after that, he, he, he did a demo for the scream series and, um, he got the, he got the movie scream. So I, I think I mostly assisted and did sort of, uh, I don't know. Some people call it a, a score wrangler. I don't know what it would be like just doing a lot of, um, you know, you know what, what it is, is a lot, a lot of times they, they kept changing the picture. The picture would never be locked. So we'd keep getting these VHS tapes, you know, every two weeks and, you know, you'd have written a cue and then they cut out, you know, 10 frames here, three frames there, seven frames there. And it's like, he hands me the tape and says, all right, you know, we call it conforming, you know, go ahead and conform this cue. So I did a lot of that kind of stuff and assisting and all that kind of stuff. And then um, and with Scream 2 and 3 and then some of the other stuff that you mentioned, I started writing some additional music for him. And, um, you know, sort of in the style of the genre and the style that he writes in. And it was really fun. And what was great about working for him those few years was that I was really mentoring under, under him unofficially. It wasn't like this was this official mentorship or anything like that. But I was basically learning the ropes as a composer, you know, how to deal with directors and producers, how to deal with sticky situations when people aren't quite happy and you've got to make them happy. And, you know, how do you get your work done on time? How do you, you know, just navigate all these various things that you need to navigate in this world uh, without getting yourself fired or getting people upset and, you know, while still maintaining your creative vision and, and all that kind of stuff. I'm just kind of curious, uh, because Resident Evil, for example, is a, a video game adaptation. I'm just curious, and you know, did you bring any experience of your experience with video games to your work on that film in particular? Just because it's that's that's a, that's a really interesting film because it was also trying to both uh, be cinematic but also adapt things that people liked about the game, and that would including the sound in a lot of areas. I think what we were trying to do is being a lot more electronic with the music. Um, and actually, um, Marilyn Manson was involved in that first score. Oh, wow. So, uh, so Marilyn Manson, Marco, and then Mark, you know, Marco's team, which was Marco, me, and like, I think another one or two other people who did some music on it. And so we would have some meetings with the, with the director. And, um, to be honest, I don't ever remember, him ever mentioning or referring to any of the original video game music. I think it was really more along the lines of like, um, I think there was, <laughs> the budget was less. So if there was no uh, orchestral budget for recording live orchestra. So it was like, how do we make, how do we have this, create this score that sounds really high, high quality, high energy, but, um, you know, it doesn't rely on, on the orchestra. So that, that was a bit more of it was just getting the right tone that hits the, the right mood cinematically. 
So uh, I'm kind of in a similar vein. Uh, one thing that I doubt most people approach when they're thinking about, I'm going to be a composer or I'm going to be a director or some kind of artist is kind of all of the the business side of, of, of arts management and, and, and creation in that way. So um, what are some of your, uh, just I'd be interested to know some of your perspective on navigating the world of producers and how you work with all of these different uh, television networks um, because, you know, the, you know, these animation houses, they're really, you know, churning it out at the time, especially during that era. Just really interested to hear about that. I think to be a successful composer, you have to be a successful business person, um, or at, at least in the sense of understanding that this is a business and that I I have a marketable skill and I, I know how to write. I'm basically, you know, I know how to write music on demand in various styles and to make, my job is to make people happy. So like, if I want to just write art music for art's sake, I really shouldn't be in this business um, because, um, you know, you get, you, you have to make, the people you're working for happy and you have to be agreeable to them and you have to be willing to make changes and, you know, not to be difficult because you just won't work again. Um, So there's that aspect. And then the the other thing that I've really learned as I've been going along um, in my career is that uh, for me, at least um, I, I really can't stop networking or stop letting people know that I'm willing, want to work for the work with them or, letting people know what I've been up to lately. You can't just sit in your little studio and just kind of ignore the world and hope that everyone, you know, phones you up. You've got to let people know that you're out there. Um, So, you know, marketing, PR, um, going out to lunch with people, um, asking friends and colleagues, you know, if they hear about new projects and then reaching out to those people, whether you know them or not. So, you know, even, you know, cold calling and, um, that kind of that kind of stuff. So that's really important. It it really really is. Yeah, I actually had the privilege uh, in the past couple months. Uh, I spoke with another uh, composer who did a lot of animation, kind of in the same era, era as you, uh, Jim Venable. Oh, and, yeah. yeah, yeah. Are you guys acquaintances? Or you probably uh, we've met a couple of times. Yeah, <laughs> that's amazing. Uh, but one thing that he mentioned to me that was. Uh, super interesting um, during his interview was the idea that back when he felt he started, it seemed like things were a lot more linear. You know, you do a show at a certain level and then you work hard enough and you get put onto a project that's a little bit bigger, a little bit bigger. And then you're like doing features and it kind of expansive like that. But he said that in the, in, in the age of uh, technology that we're in, um, that that kind of it's like a little more of a wild west, you know, in terms of like networking, because, you know, some kid with a YouTube channel might be called on to do some kind of animated show. Um, so I just wanted to kind of get your perspective on kind of the state of the industry and if if that rang true for you or not. That's an interesting perspective. Um, I don't I don't know. I, I might be in my own little bubble. I I, I think that there's some element of truth to that. There's always going to be like the, 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 the guy who gets his first animated show and he wants to use his roommate for music. I mean, that's kind of a, an inevitable thing that will happen forever. Um, but then that was Brian Canizzo who did 
the last avatar and his uh, roommate um, <laughs> are those the, those two guys that are like amazing composers and just you know, happen they... to be that guy. And the reason I bring that up is like, I literally would have been the guy scoring that show because Brian worked on Invader Zim. So I probably, I remember talking to him about it. I'm like, Hey, I heard you're doing a new show. You know, I'd love to be considered for it. He's like, Oh, I, my roommate's going to do the score. <laughs> so, um, I've come sec I've come in second on a lot of really interesting uh, projects and that's sort of par for the course. You know, it's like, there's a lot of really good ones that get away, but you know, what, what can you do? You, you just know that, well, Hey, at least I was there and I was super close and you just keep moving forward. Um, but I, you know, as far as the industry goes, I just kind of keep my head down and just kind of keep plugging away and I, like just feel really confident in the work that I am doing and the credits that I do have. And I just use that to let people know where I'm at and what I'm doing and, you know, have links to new music up on my SoundCloud or wherever. And it's like, you know, that's all I can do. And just, uh, you know, I just put it out there and, and just hope that it continues. I've, you know, I've been pretty busy for, I think I've been, I'm on my like 26th year of being a professional composer and I've been pretty busy, um, Throughout, I've had a couple sort of slow years, but sometimes those slow years are really good motivation to, you know, either work on your skills or do some more networking or, um, you know, kind of just have time off to recharge the batteries a little bit. So I, um, I, I do have a daughter in college, so I'm hoping that I don't get slow soon because because that costs money. But other than that, you know. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> uh, I think that, man, it's like a, a great way to look at it though, because uh, as a way to keep refining your skill. And I know it's one of those things where you're always executing work. It seems like it's hard to, to, to focus on, on developing in, in certain areas. Yeah, for uh, sure. And I'm just curious, uh, you, you mentioned Invader Zim and, you know, I think, you know, it's uh, definitely a different ball game than, than Avatar The Last Airbender, but uh, I think it's beloved. It, and I, the thing that's really fascinating about this show is it's one of those shows that, you know, obviously it wasn't like the hit they wanted at the time. Right, but sleeper. it's a sleeper. But it's a, it's got such a cult status. I remember, I, I really liked it when I was a when I'm you know when, when it came out, and I was much younger, and have a lot of friends who who were too. But um, it, I feel like the popularity has really grown and achieved cult status. I mean, there's merchandise for it in every hot topic in the country. Right. Yeah, I know it's so funny. So I'm just curious, what is it like having a show you worked on, a, a score you worked on, go on to achieve cult status that is so closely associated with that property? It, yeah, it's really weird. Um, it's it's really gr it's really great to 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 have you know com compose music and be part of a, a project that's sort of goes beyond itself and beyond where it was originally. I do remember working on the show and just thinking this is the craziest, most um, creative stuff. And like, I didn't watch a ton of cartoons. I, I mean, I watched cartoons growing up, but this there was just nothing like this and i remember you know talking to jonan and other people at nickelodeon and we were like you know what what is a show doing on nickelodeon it's like yeah. everyone's is, question. everyone's question <laughs> <laughs> and it's like it's almost like the light bulb went off and some of the executives head they're like oh yeah why is this show on our network um and but i remember just 
everyone was so passionate about it. It made me want to be passionate about it. And I loved working on it. And um, I just felt like I did some of my best work in animation on it and was actually nominated for an Annie Award for it. And um, it was <clears throat> it was also super collaborative, like working with Jonan. He, we would spot the music together and, you know, sometimes he would hum little rhythms and, you know, go, dun, 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 you know, he would just, he would kind of do that stuff because he's just loves music so much and he gets really excited about it. Sometimes he would tell me about certain examples in television or movies that he really liked, like certain montages and, um, and I'd go after, at that point, I think it was pre YouTube. So I'd have to go rent the movie or whatever. And, um, yeah, it's crazy, like, how big Invader Zim was, like, pre-social media, too. You know, this was, like, and um, I got tons of emails back then about the music and interested in the in the music and just the process and all that. So, um, yeah. What were some of the uh, the inspirations you drew from or, or kind of directions you received? Because, because it is such a wild, absurd show, I'm sure when you were looking at I'm I'm curious, like, what was the first thing you're like, this is where I want to go with it? Or did you have to do a lot of experimenting? Um, I think I wrote some I wrote some test pieces for it. There, One of them was it was the I don't know if you remember when Zim eats all the organs and he turns into this horrible blob. <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> and so like I was fresh off like scoring music on Scream on the Scream series and I was really like in this horror kind of vibe at the time and um was like it was amazing. I basically just like wrote music that I would have written for Scream for uh for these some of these sections and um it really played well and they, and they really liked it. Um but but then once once we like were really getting into the show, you know, it it, it it's a it's a sci-fi cinematic score with militaristic industrial drums and industrial elements coupled with like crazy synths mangled sounds and a lot of horror elements and horror scoring and um the the idea was to never really be cartoony so you know i don't i don't think i had any pizzicato or glockenspiel or you know anything that uh would happy little woodwinds um so we were always over the top um always over the top and that's kind of what really gave it a lot of comedy because zim was over the top so i was the music was usually showcasing zim with his over the topness and the music was over the top and just very dark and that's what made him so funny helped him be funny and then there were moments too where we would do really um, ridiculously silly things and over the top crazy silly zany so if the music was ever to go cartoony it would just go not cartoony it would go just ridiculously stupidly cartoony yeah. <laughs> which then would make it really funny as well so that that's basically zim in a nutshell and do you guys know about the movie yeah i was actually just about to ask about that are you uh are you also doing follow-up work on the 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 tv movie that's coming out yeah so i'm supposed to i should be starting work like like any day now on it oh actually my God. oh that's exciting yeah. that's so cool so i scored the trailer that they played at comic-con oh perfect wow, that's awesome uh, check that out but that was really fun so what are you the most excited for i mean because you know there's been so much distance between 
us now and the television yeah. show. What are you most excited about uh, working with in like a TV movie uh, for Invader Zim? Oh man, I'm just hoping that I'm just, again, I'm just going to be trying to make Jonan happy. I'm, that's going to be my goal really. And so I, I haven't even really seen it. I, I read the script, but then they told me that the script had changed a lot. So I'm like, okay, I, I have no idea what to expect. I mean, it's, it's I think it's about 60 something minutes. So think of it almost as like three episodes mm-hmm. of, you know, but, but they've been working on it forever. And, um, I'm I'm just really excited. I, I I'm hoping that it's just really good and that fans really like it. It's it's I have to tell you, it's super weird to be like going back to a mental space that where you were at like 17 years ago, you know, so much has changed. And you listen to like Jerry Goldsmith or John Williams or Hans Zimmer, you listen to their music from 17 years ago. And it's like, you know, they, we all go through stages and, uh, you know, um, just, yeah, we all go through, I guess, stages and, and the way we approach things are a little bit different as we go through our career. So to kind of circle back to Invader Zim, but then also it's like, it's not, you know, 1999 or 2000 anymore. It's, uh, 2018. So like, what do we, you know, how do we make this a little more modern, but yet pay homage to Invader Zim? You know, what, what does that sound like? Yeah. What does it look like? You know, that's, those are the, those are the challenges of scoring the movie. And that kind of, that kind of reminds me of what you were saying. I mean, Williams is a great example of a man who keeps circling back to this property that he's worked on yeah. so much of his life. And so that's kind of, that's such a really good comparison. And uh, yeah. yeah, I that must be such a strange place to be in. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it is. I think for John Williams, it's like, he doesn't, He's just going to, he gets to just sort of keep doing the same thing, but like changing it because there's new characters and whatnot. And he's, I think he's done it enough where there wasn't too many breaks, but I think, I bet for him, it's still just really challenging that first few cues when he has to get back into that Star Wars mindset. You know, he's like, oh, I've been working so hard to kind of get out of this thing to go do this other stuff because I wanted to sound different for this because, you know, the last thing I want to do is like, you let you were mentioning Shaolin Showdown before the show started. Last thing I want to do when I'm working on my second TV show, um, right after Invader Zim, is to sound like Invader Zim, you know. But yet, you want the essence of the composer, but um, you know, it sounds be kind of weird if I'm doing industrial drum beats over, um, you know, when I'm supposed to be writing Asian music. <laughs> so. Yeah, that's uh, speaking of Shaolin Showdown, I was a huge fan of that show. Um, and and one thing that was really interesting is that you um, had a lot of music cues and scoring that drew from so many different genres of of uh, film and music. So, I mean, you have the Western whenever Clay's doing his thing. And then, of course, you kind right. of got that Kung Fu Samurai feel, you know, just like uh-huh. a temple. And then, like, Spicer... Uh, especially he kind of gets into like that a little bit more of that like oh i'm bad guy kind of industrial sound so as a composer how do you take so many almost disparate seeing elements and kind of blend it together into something that still feels like one work and that unifies the themes like the theme of the show not necessarily musical theme right um i guess so i would say maybe i'm the glue sort of my my sort of baseline style of composing is sort of the glue and then me just trying to do all these badly imita- bad imitations of all the different styles. 
and then but then all sort of all with that glue underneath kind of helps it um that that show was really unique because each character was so defined like Ramundo was from Brazil or Latin America so you had all that and then Clay was like Texan with the <clears throat> the dobro and the guitars and the western music and then Omi was Chinese so he had all the Chinese elements and then Dojo the dragon was Chinese and um the their master I can't remember master Feng I think so yeah yeah, he you know he was definitely Chinese, but then um, the girl Kimiko, she was uh, Japanese. So then, so I had to like, okay, what what makes what's the difference between Japanese and you know Chinese music? Well, there's a, a lot of difference. Um, Japanese traditional Japanese really only has a couple instruments. It's um, like the um, the shakuhachi and you know the taiko drums and then like one or two other stringed instruments. But then uh, Chinese instruments, there's just like a billion of them mm. all kinds of really interesting little instruments and big instruments and whatnot so that was a lot of fun just from a musicology musicology standpoint of and like trying to collect the right um, and amass a collection of really good samples and sounds um to to do the show and then on top of all that yeah we had the the bad character the bad guy character and jack spicer and his sort of industrial heavy metal kind of sound um, and then, and then at the end of every episode, there was, um, the showdowns, which you go into this sort of magical world. So then we were kind of doing more like hip hop beats and, um, sort of, um, mashed up kind of beats that were kind of cool in the early two thousands and, um, in, in a really big, exciting sort of, um, orchestral cinematic, um, Asian kind of style. So I don't know. It was really fun. And I, I think it was another one of those projects where I just kind of threw myself into it and just, just did it and didn't worry about, worry about what, worry about it too much. Just kind of jump in and just do it. Yeah. That's awesome. Oh, it's so cool hearing you talk about it. That's such a good, <laughs> that's such a good show from when I was oh, a kid. Yeah. Uh, so I'm curious, uh, kind of uh, leapfrogging to another thing, another brand you've been associated with. I mentioned earlier is uh, Spider-Man. And right. uh, it, it really has I've been hitting me the last like two weeks. I'm like, there's, there's a lot of Spider-Man out there right now. And I am not mad about it because it's such a great yeah. character. Uh, but you've uh, you've covered a lot of Spider-Man over the past two decades. So is that fun to experiment with different iterations uh, of the character? Yeah, it is. Um, what's been really challenging um, uh, is that uh, well, what was weird was I did the video game Ultimate Spider-Man. And then like eight to 10 years later, then they, they decided to, to do a, a television show, an animated series, ultimate Spider-Man, but they weren't really related in any way, but it just so happened that I scored, uh, the video game called ultimate Spider-Man and that then the animated series, ultimate Spider-Man. Um, and they had, they had both very different styles of music. Um, and then, the producer from the first Spider-Man called me again as that one was winding down and said, Hey, we're, we're, we're creating the next reiteration of Spider-Man. We're calling it Marvel's Spider-Man. And it's a little bit closer to the more recent movies. Um, whereas, you know, Peter is still in high school. He's, he doesn't have everything figured out. He's still trying to figure out life and just being a teenager. And, um, things are a little, 
I would say maybe a little bit more realistic, although as the seasons have gone on, it's, it's, you know, turns into like, you know, 30 characters fighting 30 characters. Right. Um, <laughs> it, it's kind of hard for those big, th- you, you can do whatever, you know, budget, there's not as budgets, not really as uh can, you can basically kind of do what you want with animation. Whereas like an action film, you're like, Oh, we need 30 characters fighting another 30 characters. Like, well, you know, that would cost $300 million. Okay. Forget it. Let's not do that. But you know, animation, it's like, Oh, okay. <laughs> I guess it's, it's harder for the animators for sure, but uh, you can get them to do it. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, what's weird is like having to write, it wasn't that many years ago where I was writing like, let's say the, the, the themes for cloak and dagger for ultimate Spider-Man. And then, then it's like, Oh, okay. Then in Marvel, Marvel Spider-Man, now we have cloak and dagger and same with doc Ock and, you know, and Harry Osborn and, you know, the Osborns and a lot of these just main, um, main characters. And it's in having, getting to like, reimagine their themes in a couple different way a couple different times is kind of fun and is is also challenging you know you've been doing spider-man for i mean just you know over the years off and on you've done so many different iterations and you mentioned ultimate spider-man which i want to say was like the early mid 2000s 2006 at ballpark i remember because i played the game and, yeah, and, and really right. loved it um had a great score but i i'm interested because uh, so the, the superhero surrounding superhero properties in general has blown up in the last 10 years. I mean, since the uh, MCU you know, came around, so I'm sure it's a lot different. Has, has the, the direction of the MCU uh, influenced the way you've reimagined the character in, in more recent iterations? Yeah, I would say yes and no. Um, yes, for this most recent Spider-Man, because they wanted to try to align the more recent Spider-Man series to sort of align with the, the more recent Spider-Man uh, Spider-Man movies. Um, so like initially when we started out with um, the first season of Marvel Spider-Man, I, I intentionally went a little more orchestral with the, the music. Whereas on ultimate Spider-Man, our first uh, season was almost like punk rock, uh, punk rock meets orchestra with like, kind of like think of like punk rock motocross, uh, you know, really hard hitting, fast, exciting, fun, and really just moving forward. But um, with the Spider-Man that I'm scoring now, it's still got a lot of good energy, but it's more orchestral, a little more cinematic, a little more traditional. Um, but that's kind of actually now I'm, you know, I just finished scoring the last episode of season two. So we've kind of the, the music as the show, the music, as well as the show has evolved since it first started. And um, <clears throat> the music has kind of jumped all kinds of genres, you know, from um, from really like heavy metal mech, mech battles to um, to really interesting sound design-y stuff to kind of like Stranger Things vibed kind of um, moments to full-on orchestra. But I, I do have this one theme... I think the theme really helps to identify each show. Like my theme for Marvel Spider-Man is much more cinematic and um, heroic. And then the theme for Ultimate Spider-Man, uh, the series, 
was a bit more bluesy and a little more mischievous and um, paid a little bit more homage to the original Spider-Man theme from the first series way back when. That's awesome. And that uh, totally leads into my question about whenever you're composing uh, title music for uh, the intro theme for cartoons or if it's live action uh, television show, what are you aiming to accomplish whenever you're constructing that piece? What do you what are your goals whenever you're creating uh, creating it for the end product to to do? Well, um, I, I had a crazy story with the, the Johnny Test main titles. Johnny Test. Um, I, I scored <laughs> the first season of Johnny Test for Warner Brothers, and then the show was sold to Cookie Jar Entertainment up in Canada, and the Canadians uh, like to use their Canadian composers. So... <laughs> I was like, hey, I, you know, I grew up in Minnesota. Does that count? But no, that's pretty close for America. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, but when I was scoring the the main title, I I tried out a bunch of different, um, I wrote full on pieces like in different styles and you know, nothing was quite hitting. And then they, they referenced um, some particular styles, more of a, it's just kind of a fun, upbeat punk rock kind of vibe. And so then um, I brought in a, a co-writer and then we went to the office of the guy of Scott Fellows, who w- was the creator of the show and also like the, the head writer. And so he was doing the lyrics. And so we sat in his office for like a half an hour. And my, my friend who was doing the, the, um, playing the guitar and co-writing it with me. He just kind of, we just started figuring out riffs right there in the office. And and we all just started like singing the song and coming up with the, the, you know, the tempo and the vibe and the, the first section, the second section. And then we, we did that. We figured that out. Then we went back to his studio and we just kind of recorded a lot of it and banged it out. And it was like this really fun. It was, it went from a super frustrating experience of me trying to do it all on my own and trying like four or five different versions of stuff and nothing quite hitting right to then like just this sort of magical like everything just sort of works so sometimes it and so i guess what i'm saying with that is sometimes you go through a a a long process and it and it's it's creative but it's also frustrating and then other times like for spite the spider-man's um the the main titles are really short so it's really more about um the ultimate spider-man was more about kind of giving a a retro vibe like that felt like it was the original um spider-man show and i actually didn't have the theme in there i never actually used that theme but then ultimate spider or then marvel spider-man actually does have the heroic theme uh sort of a motif of it in there um that gives you a sense of of that um and then a lot of times, like on Ben, I'm scoring Ben 10 for Cartoon Network, and they they went to the original composer of the original Ben 10 um, theme and had him redo something kind of inspired by his own main title, but something kind of fresh and new, but yet still inspired by the original. Um, so I I didn't I you know a lot of times I'm not asked to do main titles even though I'm scoring the show. That's interesting. Um, I. I, I'm hearing more and more, like as I'm looking more into people composing for animated programs, that that's kind of a 
kind of a common thing. I mean, uh, as a layman, I'm like, oh, well, yeah, obviously the composer does all of it. But um, but it's like, no, we're going to get some big name or, you know, the original guy if it's kind of a spinoff thing like you were talking about. Yeah, honestly, I don't mind. If they say um, we want you, I'd rather score the show than do the main title. So I, I'm like, that's fine with me because I know that it's a lot of hard work. So, uh, you know, like it's it can be hard and frustrating or it can be just magical but you know a lot of times it's hard and frustrating so you know if if i always try to do it but if they already have someone in mind or they already have it in, in play that's totally fine with me um i did this generator rex for cartoon network which is a punk rock inspired score and they did they had a, a band they already had a band in mind and they took one of their songs and then i actually was the music editor to make the, the music fit, fit the um, main title. So that was fun. But, um, you know, I think that can be really good for a property. Sometimes you get sort of a a unique vision for the main title and then, um, you know, then you get another set of music for the for the score. Yeah, no, I think that's um, uh, I think that's uh, definitely I'm sure as someone composing the score, it kind of gives you a jumping off point for what the, the tone of the show is. Yeah, sometimes. Or I just usually... Or I just ignore it. <laughs> <laughs> the worst is when they want you to reference the theme in the music for the show because I'm like, well, I don't want to do that because, um, well, because I make royalties and I make money, you know, on on my on my music, mm-hmm. and if I'm having to reference someone else's music, then I got to give them a bunch of Kyushi credit. A little behind the scenes info there. No, I, I really appreciate that the inside baseball there. Uh, kind of learn a little bit more about how the sausage is made. No, yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Um, so I'm just curious, uh, shifting gears a little bit as we as we were starting to near the end of the conversation. Uh, what is one brand or IP that you would like to work on, just in a dream world? If you could pick any IP that you'd work on uh, and have unlimited resources, like what would be the one you'd, you'd want to work on? Uh, you know what? I would I would actually love to work on live action television um something kind of gritty like the perfect show for me would be like mr robot i just love that show yeah i I love the music and um just the tone of it so you know something like that would be really really fun sort of almost like it's an invader zim that's brought to life and it's like not comedy it's just really dark or maybe it's like a dark comedy you know um that would be really fun something like that. I, you know, I don't know if I really aspire to be like, you know, Hans Zimmer or, I mean, he's one of my favorites, but like, I don't know if I really inspire to be like working on the the next big, huge Batman movie or something like that, because I've, I've talked to a lot of these film composers and I've heard stories and I got to tell you, it's a super stressful landscape at the top. You know, there's just, there's millions of executives in the room and, there's a, there's millions of dollars on the line, maybe billions of dollars on the line, and sometimes these movies they come come and they're not they don't they're, they're the the executives are worried and they're thinking that the composers can fix it with music, you know, and that's that's the worst place you want to be. <laughs> as well. Ooh, that sounds like a oh, lot of wow. pressure. <laughs> so for me, like um, I I would love to be you know I I really strive for balance in my life between work and <clears throat> family and. Um, just, you know, having, having sleep. (laughs) And, um, so 
I, I I can see myself scoring a live action show. I would love to do that. Um, but do I need to? Would I score a big film? Sure, but do I need that? No. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. I, I think that's, I think that's really good advice too. I think, uh, again, kind of making it more of a real world thing, thinking about the, the work-life balance that I think that's something a lot of younger artists might not consider as right. being valuable, but, uh, well, I, I think so many people, um, at least maybe in our age bracket, you know, if they're in a, some kind of creative field, they're like, you know, I want to be that next guy, you know, whatever the Hans Zimmer of their field is. And something that's the real reality attached to that expectation is like, well, there's going to be a lot of input on your final product. And maybe your creative spirit might be stifled from, from some of that um, kind of forced uh, requirements upon your, your ending your art. Um, but if you did have one <coughs> filmmaker you'd yeah. like to work with, who would it be? Uh, oh, I love I love Christopher Nolan because he appreciates music and turns it up loud in his mixes. Yes, he does. <laughs> he really does. Uh, yeah, and he and he he seems to really love the creative process uh, with music. So that would be that would be really cool. Um, I actually sort of did work with Christopher Nolan, but it was more in a not like actually working with him. It was. I did these um, direct to DVD. Um, I did a movie for Warner Brothers Animation. It was Batman Gotham Knight. Oh yeah, the 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 one that bridged uh, Batman Begins and uh, Dark Knight. Right. So those guys were involved with that. The Nolan brothers. I don't know exactly in in what regard, but it was really cool to be able to work on, you know, a couple different of those those short vignette stories, and um, just sort of be in this alternate universe of Batman. Um, but yeah, he was, he's, he's like definitely, um, a filmmaker that I really like. And I like how I like the stories I hear about how he works with composers. What's your impression, you know, as a composer that you really like about, uh, what Chris Nolan does to treat his composers? Oh, I guess just like, um, it just seems like he, he's in it for the collaboration, like he and Hans Zimmer, when they work together, it's like there's this creative energy that goes back and forth. I think Hans wants to try to do something bigger and better than the last time. And Christopher is like really open to what he wants. And I remember Hans Zimmer talking about this tape of all these crazy ideas that they had put a big, long, like 80 minute piece of just not really music, but just all these vignettes of sounds and stuff. And it was from that where they, they sort of found a sound together that Christopher Nolan really was attracted to that became sort of this sort of um, really intense kind of distorted sort of sound kind of created with guitars, but doesn't really sound like guitars. It's more of an atmosphere that, that really created the jumping off point for the bat, some of the Batman scores. Um, So I guess that's the kind of stuff that I've, that sounds really interesting. Very cool. Uh, well, is there anything else, uh, any other advice you would offer to some of our listeners out there who might be interested in pursuing a career in composing music? Well, I could talk about that for another hour. (laughs) (laughs) Um, you know, I just think that you, that, um, I would just challenge people to, if you're really passionate about something, work really hard at it. Um, do make lots of small steps every week, every day, always be moving forward, figuring out what the next thing is, you know, making goals, try to 
achieve those goals. Be realistic with your goals. Try not to do too much too quick. Um, and reach out to, you know, composers you like. You'd be amazed that, you know, I, I generally answer every email that I get. I, um, you know, and I think a lot of composers do. And um, people are probably more friendly than you imagine um, or more willing to, you know, give advice and that kind of thing. Um, just figure out if you're wanting to be a composer, figure out a good school to go to, learn your instrument, you know, try to go to USC for scoring for motion pictures and television or UCLA, <clears throat> excuse me, for their extension course or Berkeley school of music, or there's all kinds of places. Now um, there's one up in Seattle. Um, you know, just, just be doing it, you know, figure out, do things wherever you live, do things in those areas. Um, be making your own music, be on SoundCloud, have a website, network, all that stuff, you know? I mean, that's just good advice for anybody in a creative field. So, I mean, that's, you know, I'd say that's worth the price of admission. Definitely. <laughs> Yeah, I'll I'll tell you one little last story, which was um, I knew that I needed to put to put myself out there and I knew that I needed to um, start networking and calling. And I remember it was like maybe just a year and a half out of school or something. And I was just so afraid. And I remember sitting down with my parents telling them and I finally admitted to them that I was scared. I was scared to network. I was scared to pick up the phone and call people and to put myself out there. And I remember crying and it was like, it was like, I, it was like a little mini breakthrough moment, you know, just crying and admitting that I was scared. And then from there on, I just created a plan and just started doing it every day. And, um, the more you do things, the easier it gets. So, um, gosh, you know, if, if, if everything was easy in life, if all the good things in life were easy, then just everyone would be able to have it, you know, but, but, uh, good things, a lot of, a lot of good things in life are really hard. It's a lot of hard work to get to do the good things. And even when you are doing the good things, it's really hard work, you know? Yeah. I think that's a great point. That's great advice. Um, and, uh, yeah, thank you for that. I think I, like you said, I, Alex, I think that's just great career advice for anyone who wants to do creative endeavors, uh, mm -hmm. professionally. Uh, so do you have any, uh, you mentioned uh, the invaders and in movie. Do you have any other upcoming projects you'd like to talk about today? So, um, so, uh, Marvel Spider-Man is on, uh, Disney XD and streaming somewhere. I'm sure, um, that's ongoing right now. Ben 10, I'm scoring the, the new reboot of Ben 10. We're on, we're scoring, I think we're on season two. I don't know if season three has been announced yet, so I won't say anything about that. <laughs> but, um, can either confirm uh, or deny. <laughs> can either confirm or deny that I'm working on season three. Um, but uh, suffice it to say, I've got a lot of work to do on Ben 10. So that's exciting. That's, um, awesome. that's on television now and streaming and uh, worldwide. Um, I continue to write more music for Neverwinter and Star Trek Online for Cryptic Studios. Um, so, like, a lot of my most recent music for those shows is on my SoundCloud. Um, I'm on Instagram, Kevin Manthe Music, and Facebook, Kevin Manthe Music. And um, that's kind of about it. Well, thank you so much, Kevin, for joining us. Yeah, Kevin, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining uh, Soundtrack today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's been really fun.
Well, everyone, that's our show for this week. As always, please rate and review The Cinematic Schematic on iTunes. Um, That helps more people hear our show and tune in. Um, You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Alex B. Brohannon. That's B-R-O-H-A-N-N-O-N. Where can people find you, Caleb Masters? Uh, People can always find me, of course, tweeting about uh, film, television, uh, video games, all the things we talked about today. Real sweet spot. Also on Twitter uh, at uh, C Masters Talk. That's letter C Masters Talk. uh, uh, And uh, yeah, Instagram, C Masters 91. Hit me up there. Or writing and podcasting at the Cinematropolis uh, every day at the Cinematropolis. Excellent. Well, closing out our show, we'll be followed by the title theme from 2011's Tron Evolution Game, composed by our very special guest, Kevin Manthe. Well, as always, this is Soundtrack, and we'll be trucking with you next time. Mm